And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's December the 14th, 348th day of the year. 17 days remain till the year's over with. Holidays and observances. National Screwdriver Day. Uh, National Hammer Days later on. Rose Chestnuts Day. Free Shipping Day. Sustainable Entrepreneurship Day. Monkey Day. National Boogie Base Day. Hanukkah. Uh, Blue Christmas. Honoring the uh, first responders. Uh, Gift of Sight Month. Operation Santa Paws. Worldwide Food Safety Month, Food Service Safety Month, National Right of Business Plan Month, National Tie Month, National Pair Month, and Universal Human Rights Month. Well, we have been talking about some of the oddities that have come to light in the Kennedy assassination over the, the decades, and it's come to light that a lot of what we ascribe to Lee Harvey Oswald, he had nothing to do with. There were actually several people using that particular name, which, of course, um, since nobody bothered to differentiate, uh, painted an entirely different picture of the man. Um... And it's now come to light that Jim Garrison wasn't far from correct when he brought his suit against Clay Shaw. Turns out Clay Shaw was a, a contact, according to the CIA, from 49 to 56. But he was actually a full-blown agent from 1947 onward. Now, another interesting connection for all the men that I've covered can be found in the story of the Slumberger Well Drilling Corporation and the burglary of their munitions depot in Huma, Louisiana. In August of 1961, David Ferry, along with Sergio or Acacia Smith, Gordon Neville, and Leighton Martins conducted the burglary in which they would ultimately be charged by Jim Garrison a number of years later. And the, um, the web of connections revealed through the Slumberger incident shocking and reaches the top of the pyramid, so to speak, and the men ultimately behind the assassination. Now, one CIA internal memo contains a list of subjects associated with Jim Garrison's investigation into the assassination, and on that list is a section entitled Slumberger Well Surveying Corporation, and under the subheading Relationship to Case, it says Garrison has charged that Gordon Noble, Sergio Arcasia Smith, and others robbed a munitions bunker in Huma, Louisiana. Gordon Noble stated the munitions in the bunker belonged to the Slumberger Corporation, and he and the others removed the contents of the bu- bunker in August of 1961 at the request of the CIA. Now, another paragraph said in Orleans' office of the DCS had one contact with Charles Daw, manager of the Slumberger office in New Orleans in June of 55. There's been an occasional but circumspect contact with the main Slumberger office in Houston for 
an extended and unspecified period, and the contact continues. So it may well have been that this was an orchestrated um, theft and munitions that were going to be used um, in various CIA-related enterprises. Now, what we can get from these paragraphs is that Slumberger had been working with the CIA since 1955, and it ferries uh, associate for most certainly the culprits. And Novel has stated that burglary itself was done at the instigation of the CIA, and the weapons and ammo taken allegedly were to be funneled to the anti-Castro Cubans. Now, now August of 1961, when this theft supposedly took place, was after the Bay of Pigs incident. So if these weapons and others that were stolen from various arms depots were meant for the Cubans, then where was the Cuban people going to use them? And what happened to all the money raised for anti-Castro causes? Now, a reporter named May Hulk, H-O-A-K, did a lot of research, and she wrote something called... Uh, arms-cia-french secret service and it contained a lot of information she gathered from a gordon novel an associate of ferry whom garrison concluded worked for the cia and novel implied that the arms stolen from slumberger were sold to inner armco a surplus weapons dealer out of virginia and in an article written by sharab Joshi for strat post in april of 2016 entitled How an Ex-Nazi Arms Dealer Sold Fighters to India and Pakistan During an Arms Embargo. It was explained that the company Rex AG Inter Armco International was an agent for Samuel Cummings. Now, you got to keep all these names straight because there's a lot of them that have come to light. Uh, Cummings, who besides being an acknowledged CIA agent, was also the owner of Adams Consolidated. And Adams Consolidated was the weapons company that imported the Carcano rifle located at the Texas School Book Depository on November 22, 1963. According to Michael Meta in his book CMC, the Italian undercover CIA and Mossad station and assassination of JFK, Samuel Cummings had a close associate named Enrico Fratoli, who sat on the board of directors of Permindex. Now, if that wasn't confusing enough, yeah, I just got an email from a, a diligent listener reminding me that I had not done our little history segment, and that is absolutely correct. So we're going to take a pause in running down memory lane and look at the history. In 557, Constantinople severely damaged by an earthquake, which cracks the dome of the Haga Sophia. 835, sweet dew incident, the Emperor Wenzong of the Tang Dynasty conspires to kill the powerful eunuchs of the Tang court, but the plot is foiled. The eunuchs, believe it or not, um, became extremely powerful in the Chinese monarchy system. 1287, St. Lucia's flood. The Zyder Zee Seawall in the Netherlands collapses, killed over 50,000 people. 1542, Princess Mary Stuart becomes Queen of the Scots at the age of one week on the death of her father, James V of Scotland. 
Theresian Military Academies founded in uh, Wiener Neustadt, Austria. Uh, Austria. 1780, founding father Alexander Hamilton marries Elizabeth Schuler Hamilton at the Schuler Mansion in Albany, New York. 1782, the Montgolfier brothers first test flying unmanned hot air balloon in France. It floats for about 1.6 miles. 1812, the French invasion of Russia comes to an end as the remnants of the Grand Army expel from Russia. 1814, War of 1812, Royal Navy seizes control of Lake Borgna in Louisiana. 1819, Alabama becomes the 22nd U.S. state. 1836, Toledo War unofficially ends as the Frostbitten Convention votes to accept Congress's terms for admitting Michigan as a U.S. state. 1863, American Civil War. Confederate victory under General James Longstreet at the Battle of Bean Station in East Tennessee ends the Knoxville Campaign. But it achieves very little as Longstreet returns to Virginia the next spring. 1896, the Glasgow Underground Railway is opened by the Glasgow District Subway Company. 1900, the quantum mechanics, Max Planck, pre presents a theoretical derivation of his black body uh, radiation law, quantum theory, I guess you could say, at the Physics um, Society in Berlin. 1902, the Commercial Pacific Cable Company lays the first Pacific te uh, Telegraph Cable from San Francisco to Honolulu. 1903, the Wright brothers make their first attempt to fly with the Wright Flyer at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. 1907, Thomas W. Lawson, the largest ever ship without a heat engine, runs aground in Founders near Hellweather's Reef within the Isles of Sicily in a gale. The pilot and 15 seamen die as a result. 1909, New South Wales Premier Charles Wade signs the Seat of Government Surrender Act in 1909, formally completing the transfer of state land to the Commonwealth to create the Australian Capital T Territory. 1911, Roald Amundsen's team comprising himself, all of Bahalan, Helmer Hansen, Zvira Hassel, and Oscar uh, Whistling, I'm the first to reach the South Pole. 1913, Haruna, the 4th and last Congo-class ship, launches, eventually become one of the Japanese workhorses during World War I and World War II. 1914, Lissandro de la Torre and the others found the Democratic Progressive Party at the Hotel Savoy in Buenos Aires, Argentina. 1918, Frederick Karl von Hessen, a German prince elected by the Parliament of Finland to become king Vano I renounces the Finnish throne. You couldn't give it away at that point in time. 1918, Portuguese President Sidonio Pais is assassinated. Also in 1918, in 1918, the United Kingdom general election occurs, the first where women are permitted to vote. In Ireland, the Irish Republican political party Sean Finn wins a landslide victory with nearly 47% of the popular vote. And also in 1918... Giacomo Puccini's comic opera Gianni Sassici premiered at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. 1939, the Winter War. Soviet Union is expelled from the League of Nations for invading Finland. 1940, plutonium, specifically PU-238, is first isolated at Berkeley, California. 1948, Thomas Goldsmith, Jr., 
Estelle Ray Mann are granted a patent for their cathode ray tube amusement device, the earliest known interactive electronic game. What would they think of a Game Boy? 1955, Albania, Austria, Bulgaria, Cambodia, Ceylon, Finland, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, Jordan, Laos, Libya, Nepal, Portugal, Romania, and Spain joined the United Nations through the United Nations Security Council Resolution 109. Reminds me of the price is like, y'all come on down. 1958, the third Soviet Antarctic expedition becomes the first to reach the southern pole of inaccessibility. 1960, Convention Against Discrimination in Education of UNESCO is adopted. But we got plenty of it today. 1962, NASA's Mariner II becomes the first spacecraft to fly by Venus. 1963, the dam containing the Baldwin Hills Reservoir burst, killing five people and damaging hundreds of homes in Los Angeles, California. 1964, American Civil Rights Movement, Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the U.S. Supreme Court of the U.S. rules that Congress can use the Constitution's Commerce Clause to fight discrimination. 1971, Bangladesh Liberation War. Over 200 of East Pakistan's intellectuals are executed by the Pakistan army and their local allies. The dates commemorated in Bangladesh as the Martyred Intellectuals Day. 1972 Apollo program. Eugene Cernan is the most recent person to walk on the moon after he and Harrison Smith complete the third and final extra-to-vehicle activity of the Apollo 17 mission. 1981 Arab-Israeli conflict. Israel's Knesset. Ratifies the Golan Heights law, extending Israeli law to the Golan Heights. 1985, Wilma Mankiller takes office as the first woman elected to serve as principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. 1986, Kasbah, Algar massacre. Over 400 Muhajirs um, killed in a revenge killing in Cassaba Colony after a raid on uh, Pushtun Heroin Processing and Distribution Center in uh, Sarab Goth by the security forces. 1992, war in Abkhazia, siege of Tvarcelli, helicopter carrying evacuees from uh, Tvarcelli is shot down, resulting in at least 52 deaths, including 25 children. Incident catalyzed, well, Catalyzes more concerted Russian military intervention on behalf of Abkhazia. 1994, construction begins on the Three Gorges Dam on the Yangtze River. 1995, Yugoslav Wars. A Dayton Agreement signed in Paris by the leaders of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, Croatia, and Bosnia and Herzegovina. 1998, Yugoslav Wars. Yugoslav Army ambushes a group of Kosovo Liberation Army fighters attempting to smuggle weapons from Albania into Kosovo. They kill 36. 1999, torrential rains cause flash floods in Vargas, Venezuela, resulting in tens of thousands of deaths, the destruction of thousands of homes, the complete collapse of the state's infrastructure. 2003, Pakistani President Pervez Musharraf narrowly escapes an assassination attempt. 2004, Milleru Viaduct, the tallest bridge in the world, is formally inaugurated near Milleru in France. On this date in 2012, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting took place. 28 people, including the gunman, are killed in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. 
That's the incident over which uh, Alex Jones has been sued. 2013, a reported coup attempt in South Sudan leads to continued fighting and hundreds of casualties. 2017, Walt Disney Company announces it will acquire 21st Century Fox, including the 20th Century Fox Movie Studio, for $52.4 billion. Well, that's just pocket change to them. After all, they've lost a billion dollars on movies that flopped because they don't understand what the American public wants. 2020, a total solar eclipse is visible from parts of the South Pacific Ocean, Southern South American, South Atlantic Ocean. Now, on that note, we have finished our little history segment. We're going to go back to talking about the, uh, what I call the two Oswalds. Now, I mentioned the Slumberger Corporation before we went and did our history segment. It was run by a gentleman by the name of Jean de Manel. He came from an aristocratic French family who immigrated to the U.S. during the World War II. Married his wife, Dominique Slumberger, in 1931. After residing in New York for a time, he eventually settled in Houston. He and his wife were well known for their expansive art collection and their passion for the arts. And today, the, the Manel collection still hosts thousands of works and art, of art in a gallery in the Montrose neighborhood of Houston. Now, the reason that John de Manel is an important figure because, besides his philanthropy is because of his position on the board of directors of Premindex. Just like Clay Shaw and Enrico Fratelli, he sat on the board of directors for the company that ultimately planned and financed, according to all the evidence, the assassination of JFK. He was also a close associate of George de Morningshield, Oswald's only friend in Dallas, and he counted in his, among his friends many members of the Dallas white Russian community. Now, in regards to the burglary at the munitions bunker in Huma, Louisiana, uh, it was clearly an inside job. David Farrington's associates had been working out at Guy Bannister's office on Camp Street, committed the burglary, brought the arms back to Bannister's office, and that act implicates Bannister in the incident as the likely go-between to Schumberger. Mr. Lumberger had dealings with the CIA going back to 1955 at the latest. John de Manil was running Slumberger at the time of the burglary and was also a board member of Permadex along with Clay Shaw. And Shaw, as we have said, was a close associate of Ferry and Shaw had been seen at Bannister's office. So you got everybody in the same pot, which raises the question... How could such a theft be, uh, take place if it wasn't an inside job? Now, this is a closed loop of interaction between Ferry and his associates, Bannister, Clay Shaw, Gene DeMille, and the CIA. Relationship also illustrates the direct link between Ferry and Permandex, which was ultimately a creation of the Mossad and the CIA. For anybody to think that those relationships are coincidental or... not connected to the larger scheme, which is absolutely ridiculous. Ferry and all the people he associated with were CIA. 
Now, besides being a contract agent and pilot for the CIA, he tries to organize crime through Carlos Marcello, the mob boss in New Orleans. At the time of the assassination, Ferry had been working as an investigator for George Ray Gill, Marcello's attorney. And according to an FBI document, uh, Gill first met Ferry in 1961, hired him as an investigator and all-around handyman and paid him 300 bucks a month. And while he may have been on Gill's payroll, he also was working for Carlos Marcello, so he was making money from every direction. 2004, Frank the Hitman Sharon, a Philadelphia mobster, wrote his memoir and had it published. He had it published um, post-mortem. It was entitled, I Heard You Paint Houses. And in it, he described his interaction with Ferry prior to the assassination of Kennedy. And he also discussed another man he knew who was a mob associate whose name was Jack Ruby. So once again, we've got the same parties. Sharon said once in a while, Giancana would have a guy with him named Jack Ruby from Dallas. He said, I met Jack Ruby a few times. I know Jimmy's kid met him too at the Edgewater. Ruby was with Giancana. He was with Red Dorfman. One time we all went out to eat, and Ruby had a blonde with him that he brought over from Dallas for Giancana. There's no doubt whatsoever that Jimmy Hoffa didn't just meet Jack Ruby. He knew Jack Ruby, and not just from Giancana, but from Red Dorfman as well. So clearly we've got a incestuous relationship of all the parties that up to this point have been looked at as peripheral figures in the Kennedy assassination. So Sharon's statement in his memoir throws the official story about Ruby out the window. He was more than just a local Dallas nightclub owner. He was also connected to Hoffa, which is important since uh, one of Hoffa's closest associates, Robert Bernard Baker, was also connected to the uh, assassination. Now, Sharon... Also went on to say uh, quite a bit of interesting information about uh, one key aspect of the assassination. He said, uh, Tony Pro got up from his table, went to the back, and came back with a duffel bag, gave it to him, and told him to go down to Campbell's Cement in Baltimore, and you'll where you went that time with the truck, our friend's pilot will be there, and he's waiting for this. Well, it was clear from picking up the bag that it had three rifles in it. When he got there, Carlos uh, Marcello's pilot, Dave Ferry, was there with another guy um, who was affiliated with the Genovese crime family. Now, Ferry took the bag. They said goodbye. Sharon went home, and Ferry went to New Orleans. Now, it was suspected by uh, Garrison that those rifles were Mauser 7.65s, like the one found at the Texas School Book Depository, as observed and reported by half the cops on the sixth floor. Now, a lot of folks discount what Sharon wrote. 
And um, by the time he wrote the book, though, he was long past the time when it could have done any harm to him to tell the truth. And the statement by Sharon in his memoirs clearly connects Dave Ferry to mobsters in both Philadelphia and New Jersey. And Dave Ferry was, according to the description Sharon gave in his memoirs, Marcello's pilot. When Carlos Marcello was deported to Guatemala, Ferry was the pilot who scooped him up and brought him back to the States. Now, there was a story in the Washington Post written by Ronald Goldfarb in 1993. It was entitled, What the Mob Knew About JFK's Murder. And he said the Kennedy Justice Department was not the first to target Marcello. The U.S. government had been trying to deport him as an undesirable alien since 1952 because of a conviction for a drug violation. Italy eventually agreed to admit him, but Marcello arranged to get phony proof of citizenship in Guatemala. Marcello intermediary Carl Noll negotiated a deal with a local fixture to enter Marcello's birth in the ledger of a small Guatemalan village. And this information was tracked down in Guatemala by John Jugud, who recalls he was followed by Marcello associate David Ferry. 1956, Marcello filed a lawsuit in the Italian courts to establish he was not an Italian citizen. Well, Ferry is what you would call a mob associate. Having the employment run through Gill provides Ferry with the plausible deniability that all mobsters and CIA agents require. And the CIA and the mafia had, long, had a long-standing relationship, more often than not, that overlapping interest. And many of Ferry's guys, including Sergio Acacia Smith and Emilio Santana, had picked up work from Marcello, performing low-level tasks like running drugs and prostitutes back and forth between Dallas and Miami. And the strongest evidence for David Ferry's involvement in the assassination comes from the witnesses who, unbeknownst to them, their testimony placed him in Dallas on the grassy knoll and at the scene of the Tippett shooting. There are many relevant aspects of the case that um, don't really make sense until you involve David Ferry being in Dallas. And prior to putting a rifle in David Ferry's hand, um, a lot of folks discounted the, um, the extent of the CIA and mafia involvement. Russo testified before Clay Shaw grand jury he'd seen Oswald a party with Ferry and Shaw. Well, look to the left while the truth lies to the right. The big deal about Perry Russo is he's the alleged proof that Oswald and Ferry's New Orleans crew were working together. Allegedly at this party, Ferry, Oswald, and Clay Shaw discussed assassinating the, president, the president in the presence of several Cubans. Now, the issue here is that the research focus on Russo's testimony was pushed into whether or not the man at the party was Oswald and away from the allegations and away from the even the remotest discussion of the idea that these men were planning to assassinate the president. Allegations Russo may have been swept under the rug when they should have been the focus of investigation. 
Until you put a rifle in Ferry's hand, Rousseau's statements could seem to be simply the fanciful boasting of an attention seeker. But once you know his involvement, oh, those statements take on a life of their own. Rousseau described being at a party at Ferry's apartment on Louisiana Avenue Parkway in September 1963. He said there were about 10 people at the party. Everybody's drinking. Present with David Ferry, his roommate introduced as Leon Oswald, an older man wearing a suit with the gray hair, identified as Clem Bertrand. This was uh, David Ferry, Carrie Thornley, and Clay Shaw. Rousseau said there was a record player playing sounds, not music, and everybody was taking turns giving speeches. Recall one of the Cubans is how he made a speech in Spanish like Hitler, and everybody laughed at him. He told Garrison he didn't really feel comfortable because he didn't speak Spanish. Well, the Leon Oswald introduced at this party was not Lee Harvey Oswald, it was Carrie Thornley, masquerading as Leon Oswald. According to Russo, they were sitting around on the sofas and he came in late. Uh, Ferry gave him a drink. He said no, he didn't want anything. Sat down, played like he belonged. He didn't know what was going on. Dave went and got drinks for everybody. All the drinks were coffee and they resumed the conversation. He said it became clear shortly that he planned to assassinate the president. Now, Russo was asked specifically if Ferry ever told him he was going to assassinate the president in Dallas. He said nothing about Dallas. Ferry had a bunch of newspaper clippings, about one-inch thick, all of them about Kennedy. Kennedy's picture, Kennedy's name on the headline. There were bands and clips on them, and he carried them around with him. Never said he was going to Dallas. He said he was going to assassinate the president, and I laughed at him, but I never laughed in front of his friends. Well, in hindsight, it does make perfect sense. Ferry hated Kennedy. In fact, his rage for Kennedy overflowed and ended up telling people things he frankly shouldn't have told them. Perry Russo is a prime example of that. And while this is anecdotal evidence at best, it appears to have been corroborated by Ferry's presence on the grassy knoll. When Ferry's questioned about his statement by Jim Garrison, he never denies it. He generalizes it and tells Garrison he may have made an off-the-cuff remark, something along the lines he ought to be shot, but Claimed it was nothing more than that. But once you put David Ferry on the knoll, the anecdotal stories that incriminate him become a mountain of undeniable evidence. Well, Russo testified at Clay Shaw's trial February 10, 1969. He positively identified Clay Shaw as the man that he met at the party with Ferry and Leon Oswald. He also confirmed that Shaw was introduced to him as Clem Bertrand. Told the jurors approximately three or four hours after his arrival, the party had thinned to just Shaw, Ferry, and Leon Oswald. Well, he was questioned by Clay Shaw's attorney, Irvin Diamond, and Diamond asked Rousseau about the conversation that continued after most of the attendees left. And Rousseau told the court the conversation returned to killing Kennedy. He said, well, Ferry's habit was to walk up and down, and he was walking up and down telling how he projected assassination uh, could be pulled off assassination of President Kennedy. And during that time, he talked about this triangulation of crossfire where it would be, uh, where there would be a perfect opportunity to hit the president. He said this is a habit he had. He was sticking his hand up and showing a three-sided triangle or a three-cornered triangle. 
He said of these three people, for two of them to escape, one would have to be captured as a scapegoat or a patsy for the other two. And that perhaps there could be a diversionary shot or all three would shoot at the president somewhere in the middle and one of them would have to be the scapegoat. And maybe the one that was a scapegoat there could be what he called a diversionary shot and the other two would shoot for the, uh, for the kill or a direct hit. Now, the media never reported all this information that showed up in the Clay Shaw trial. Now, Perry Russo was an insurance salesman in New Orleans. He wasn't a tactical mastermind. He wasn't a trained sniper. He'd have no knowledge or understanding of things like triangulated crossfire. So when a witness provides testimony you don't understand the importance of or significance of, you can guarantee that witness's testimony is in all likelihood true. Well, a lot of the pieces didn't come together until it became clear that David Ferry was, in fact, in Dallas. And once that was established, Russo's testimony became very important. And he went on to state before the court that Ferry devised another plan and said uh, what they could do was to make sure they had alibis and were in the public eye at the time of the assassination. Well, you have to consider if Perry Russo's lying about the statements of David Ferry and his commentary about the assassination, then it appears his knowledge of how to pull off such a uh, scenario would make him an absolute expert on the subject. If Russo didn't hear those words come out of Ferry's mouth, how on earth did he come to understand the ins and outs of the assassination as he described in his testimony? Those ins and outs being fairly accurate. Now, Russo's statements about Ferry and what he'd said about killing the president hold immense historical significance. They actually give an inside view into Ferry's mind before the assassination. We've also got the input of Reverend Raymond Brochiers, who was an associate and roommate of Ferry's after the assassination. And his statements to Garrison provide another look into the mind of David Ferry. Now, Brochiers became known in the California gay rights movement in the 60s and 70s, and Wikipedia described him as a gay Pentecostal evangelist preacher and activist who founded Lavender Panthers, an armed self-defense group for the LGBT community in San Francisco. Brashears is also credited being one of the organizers of the first gay pride parade. So if you think it's strange that Brashears, who ran a one-man odd sect of church, was hanging with CIA guys like Ferry, it, it's not. CIA were running one-man churches across the country for money-raising and laundering purposes. Brashears, plentiful connections in New Orleans, paint a pretty clear picture. He was also CIA. Doesn't appear he was in the picture before the assassination, but but he became very familiar with these characters we've been discussing after having lived with David Ferry at one point. Now, Ferry confided in Brashears. He told him about his past with Eastern Airlines and the allegations against him. Ferry felt that since leaving Eastern, he'd been forced to, pres to, uh, to resort to giving flying lessons in order to make ends meet. According to Brashears, Ferry was constantly busy, not only with flying lessons, but with some other kind of flying work that involved making steady runs to South America. He felt Ferry as being forced to make these flights as he never had any money. Brashears felt that for the amount of work Ferry did, he should have more money than he did. Well, Brashears said if there was any way to make money, 
If this was a way to make money, David didn't have any. Bashir stated he felt Ferry had been forced to work for this organization, had been hooked into it, so to speak. He said Ferry never liked the work he was doing, and that Ferry had confided to him he was working for a group of people who wanted to take over the U.S. Another confirmation of the previous testimony by Russo. Ferry told Brashears he was working for people who wanted to take over the U.S. Now you need to think about that. That organization could only be the CIA. Bashir's wanted to describe an incident to Jim Garrison. He said that one night Ferry stayed with him at a hotel. He said two men came to the door and forced their way in. And they proceeded to threaten and, and interrogate Ferry. After they left, Ferry told Brashears, they're just the men who I'm afraid of. Brashears told Garrison he only, that uh, it, was only a one, it was only on occasion when Ferry was drunk or on pills that he'd open up to him. He told Garrison Ferry would confide casually with him and some of the information involvement he had with the assassination. Since he was drunk, you had to really think about whether or not what he was saying was accurate, but what Brashears was talking about paralleled what Russo was talking about. Ferry told Brashears stories about being a getaway pilot, assassin, assassins on crash planes, and escaping to South Africa. Never told Brashears anything, anything true about the details of the assassination. But he needed to confide to somebody, but he knew he couldn't give up any real details and come back to haunt him. Now, Ferry and his cohorts fled Dallas in cars, not in planes, so the story he told um, Brashears was not accurate. Initially, Brashears didn't believe a word that Ferry told him. It wasn't until after Ferry died in the mysterious circumstances and all the alphabet agencies started to show interest in him that he started to believe that Ferry was involved in the assassination. Ferry told Brashears in regard to President Johnson, if you knew what I knew, you'd kill the bastard. Unfortunately, we'll never know what Ferry knew about Johnson. He continued to, but he continued to rant to Brashears. He said, Kennedy's the first. They're not going to stop until they kill every... And they used the N-word at this point. Uh, in the country, Bashir's asked who you meant by they, and Ferry said, Hell, Boggs, and the others. He blackmails everybody. He's got a blackmail file. Uh, Ferry told Bashir's that some other people have been killed by, about what they knew about the assassination. He didn't evidently tell Brashears who these people were, but he did say if Jack D. Kennedy or Robert Kennedy ever spoke out about the assassination, they'd been warned they'd be killed as well. Ferry told Brashears that other people who were in Dallas had been killed. Now that's powerful testimony, any way you look at it. Ferry said one thing to Reverend Brashears that uh, caused a number of folks to take note. He said, there's an organization called the Central Intelligence Agency, and one of the leaders of that organization, by name Dulles, is not a fine man. He said, they're going to turn this country into one big barbed wire prison. Now, despite the fact that Dulles is no longer the head of the CIA, that sentiment holds true. If you take a hard look outside of America today, if you don't think the CIA and the powers that be have started the process of turning this country into one big barbed wire prison, as uh, stated by Ferry, you hadn't been paying attention. Well, it's interesting to note that one of the people who has been identified as 
Oswald at various times is a man named Kerry Thornley. Now, Thornley is one of two men who were the primary subjects responsible for setting up Oswald. Thornley, along with William Seymour, impersonated Oswald for years leading up to the assassination. Now, you have to ask yourself why this would have been. And how did they single out Oswald to impersonate? Unless it was a staged scenario. The angry, dissonant person we've all come to know as Lee Harvey Oswald is a, actually a finely sculpted piece of tradecraft. None of the incidents involving Oswald that we've accepted as true actually involved Oswald. The story of Lee Harvey Oswald, the angry and bitter communist, is a fiction, and Kerry Thornley was heavily involved in creating it. Now, when you study the assassination, what you'll find is you're actually studying two separate parallel stories. On the one hand, you've got the theory, uh, the story of the assassination itself and all the planning that went into it. And on the other hand, you have the story of Lee Harvey Oswald. And after years of fanatical research, you'll come to determine how little these two stories have to do with each other. Now, Oswald was obviously drugged into an intelligence plot aimed at getting a spy into the Soviet Union. And this began in an age that precluded him from having any say in the matter. He was bounced around between family members and boarding homes and schools and Later on, that became military assignments, landing him in California, and Mississippi, and in Japan. Immediately after leaving the military, he was shipped off to the Soviet Union, more likely under the Redskin or A.E. Balcony program. And when he came back to the States, he was immediately thrust into the seedy New Orleans intelligence underground. Makes you realize this guy never had anything... He never did anything of his own volition. He did what he was told to do. In actuality, we don't really know anything at all about the real Lee Harvey Oswald. Nor do we know what he actually thought about what was going on. But like a good little soldier, he followed orders to the end. Well, David Ferry was certainly the central figure involved in managing the logistics of the assassination. He's been painted over the years as a, a peripheral character. Certainly, that's when you look at the facts, he's anything but peripheral. The green light for the assassination, having come from the board of Permadex, moving on to Louis Bloomfield Central Mondeo Commercial, and passing through Clay Shaw. A March 3, 1967 CIA internal memo summarizes the allegations made against Shaw that started to circulate among various international newspapers. Now, according to that memo, attached for your information are copies of stories from the March 5, 1967 issues of Il Messaguero and Clara de Rosera concerning the New Orleans investigation of a Kennedy assassination conspiracy and the involvement of Clay Shaw. Shaw's identified as having been connected to the Central Mondial Commercial. Other persons listed as involved with CMC are Carlo D'Amelio, Heinrich Mandel Montello, George Mandel, and Ferenc Nagy. Um, no Hungarian death traces were found on Nagy. Uh, RID traces on all four people are uh, in progress. Now, the CIA certainly was taking an interest at this point. 
a very serious interest. By mid-1967, a handful of Italian and Russian newspapers, including Pravda, generally cracked the assassination. To have named the entire line of suspects stretching from Mossad to CIA to Permandex and CMC was an incredible feat. Some, like the Italian that passed Sarah, went as far as to name individuals like David Ferry and Clay Shaw. To pull that off was simply unbelievable. Ferry was undoubtedly the central figure connected in the shooting teams in the book depository, the shooter at the Downtex and rifleman behind the pergola. Ferry was himself one of the two shooters on the grassy knoll and one of two assassins of J.D. Tippett. Kerry Thornley was the Oswald lookalike who shot Tippett. Uh, Jim Garrison arrived at that same conclusion. Now, Garrison organized this file in such a manner it made it obvious that he knew about more than the files explicitly stated. The first page of Garrison's Thornley file was a copy of a small note that said Office J.D. Tippett, Volume 7 of Texas Report. Second page of Garrison's Thornley files, an FBI report discussing the sale of the Fair Play Procubal Committee flyers from the Jones Planning. And clearly, Garrison knew Thornley was the Oswald lookalike at shot Tippett. He also knew it was Kerry Thornley who ordered the Fair Play Procubal Committee flowers from Douglas Jones at Jones Printing. Now, quite often as an investigator, you can know something with absolute certainty, but be it a complete loss as how to go about proving it. When you look into the police who busted the most notorious serial killers, sometimes all it took was being in the presence of their suspect for them to know they had their man. And Garrison knew that Thornley was heavily involved in the setup of Oswald, but there was nothing he could do about it. And that became brutally obvious as you go through the hundreds of pages that Garrison collected on his prime suspect. As usual, the official narrative on Thornley downplays his association with Oswald. And, of course, if you go into the Warren Commission uh, volumes, you get minimal involvement of Thornley. Luckily, the public story of his life corroborates many of the details of his various deployments referenced in the Garrison Files. According to Wikipedia, Thornley had been in the Marine Reserves for about two years when he was called to active duty in 1958. By 1959, he and Oswald had been assigned to the same unit. Well, early 1959, Thornley served for a short time in the same radar operator unit as Lee Harvey Oswald at uh, El Toro in Santa Ana, California. And both men shared a common interest in society and culture, literature, and politics. And whenever duty placed them together, they discussed such topics as George Orwell's famous novel, 1984, and the philosophy of Marxism, particularly Oswald's interest in the latter. When aboard a troop ship returned to the U.S. from duty in Japan, that was some time after the two men parted ways as a result of routine reassignment, Thornley read of Oswald's autumn 1959 defection to the Soviet Union in the Stars and Stripes. It appeared Thornley had been recruited into the CIA immediately after his enlistment in the Marines, although a naval intelligence connection would appear more obvious. There seems to be an unbreakable bond between the CIA and the ONI during this time period. And Thornley's participation in the setup of Oswald goes back to 1960 at Atsugi, Japan, and most likely earlier. One of the first clues uh, that indicate Thornley had been involved with intelligence while he was still a recruit came from a Marine named Ronald Swinghammer. Swinghammer arrived at Atsugi, Japan in 1960 where he was assigned to the U.S. Marine Air Control Squadron run. Oswald had been assigned to the same unit 
He'd already been sent back to the States. According to a November 26, 1963 FBI report about an interview with Swinghammer, um, he said Oswald had a reputation for being an oddball, a radical, and there was a lot of talk about him even after he left the squadron. Swinghammer wasn't personally acquainted with Oswald, but uh, one Rick Thornley, who was gathering material for a book, eventually published under the Auto Warrior, was acquainted with Oswald. Since uh, Thornley um, had also lived in New Orleans, Louisiana, Swinghammer advised that the book written by Thornley had to do with the personnel of the Marine Air Control Squadron 1 and may have some reference to Oswald. Well, so right from the start, it was a contradiction in Thornley's alleged timeline of when he knew of Oswald's defection. He made various contradicting claims over the years about when he learned of Oswald's defection and when he decided to write his book based on Oswald called The Auto Warriors. Now, Thornley's novel, frankly, was the strongest evidence of his involvement in the setup of Oswald. As a result, it became the strongest evidence of conspiracy. Because he wrote the book about Oswald years before the assassination. Now, you might think it was just a coincidence, but when you come to realize both men are from New Orleans and both had direct connections to intelligence, it becomes harder and harder to accept that the relationship between the two was anything but set up from the beginning. Swinghammer's statement confirms this. He puts Thornley in at Sugi in 1960, where Thornley's gathering information for his book. The problem is stems from the information at hand is that according to Thornley, he didn't find out about Oswald's defection until he was on his home from at Sugi in late October 1960. So how could he have been inspired to write his book on Oswald and have been gathering information about Oswald while at Sugi if he didn't find out about Oswald uh, defecting until after he left Atsugi. Thornley's gathering information on Oswald while still at Atsugi in October 1960 had to have been an assignment he had been given. He was probably given the assignment to get close to Oswald, find out what he could. He had to have been keeping tabs on Oswald as part of the long-term handling and management of Oswald as, uh, since Oswald was undoubtedly part of a much larger covert program. What we've been led to understand was happenstance and coincidence was actually a well-thought-out orchestrated plan. According to Thornley's testimony before the Clay Shaw Grand Jury, he started to become aware of Oswald sometime after January or February 1959. Thornley stated Oswald never actually introduced to him, but instead he became very gradually came into my consciousness. Thornley uh, told the Grand Jury Oswald stood out because he's always getting into trouble, so he's getting into trouble on purpose. Now, you have to take this considered in light of Swinghammer asserting that Thornley and Oswald are acquainted because they're both from New Orleans. Uh, Thornley's alleged first memory of Oswald stemmed from an incident involving Sergeant Nelson Delgado. Going to Thornley, Delgado made a comment about Oswald informing that Oswald like Thornley was an atheist. Thornley told the grand jury Oswald then confirmed this and asked him what he think about communism. We now have the genesis moment of Thornley's involvement with establishing Oswald's communist persona. It's after this incident Thornley sent to Atsugi where he's stationed in Oswald's old unit. According to what Os Thornley told Jim Garrison in a 50-plus page affidavit detailing his life, association with Oswald, and 
potential involvement in an assassination plot. It, this document's been described as a work of art. It contains the writings of an extreme narcissist who flaunts the truth to garrison so often that you got to feel this affidavit. It was more like a confession. So the bottom line, Thornley, Oswald, Ferry, Shaw, Bannister, and all the cast of characters in New Orleans were all contract agents of the CIA managed by CIA employees like Fred, Week, Fred Lee Chrisman, William Godet, and maybe even David Atley Phillips himself. So when Thornley makes statements like, looking back, I feel that both Oswald and I must have been put under surveillance by the Office of Naval Intelligence during our period of active duty in the Marine Corps, he wasn't questioning whether or not naval intelligence was keeping an eye on him, but stating it as a fact. Leads like a confession. He wanted Garrison to know that he and Oswald were, in fact, connected to ONI. And that wasn't the only time that uh, Thornley rubbed Garrison's face in the truth. Well, as with any good piece of propaganda, is always a kernel of truth, and ensuring that the reader can never decipher which aspects of the story are true and which are make-believe is exactly the point. When you examine Thornley's life, one is they able to account for the fact that he started out as a Mormon, then after a stint in the Marines became a leading figure in the far-out psychedelic-influenced Discordian movement, where he used the alias Omar Khayyam Ravenhurst. Well, one thing you have to keep in mind, the CIA is nothing if not creative. Thornley planted his seeds of dissent in regards to his life when he makes statements such as, uh, as all, all had been, I became an outspoken critic of U.S. foreign policy and the Marine Corps in particular. As Oswald had done, I began to disobey orders and ridicule my military superiors. And as had Oswald, I began espousing Marxist doctrines. Well, when you read all this, you need to keep in mind that Thornley and all the players are all card-carrying agents of the CIA with contacts and naval intelligence. So every single word spouted by Thornley uh, supporting communist leanings is pure fiction. It was part of playing a part. It's a CIA cover story in action. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. This is part four. We'll be doing part five tomorrow. And we'll come up with another interesting scenario to talk about next week. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly Great evening.